Back in 1986, I had a job that required me to, to drive an hour and 15 minutes, an hour and 10 minutes each way. And I had a, um, I had at that time a Dodge Aries. Does anybody remember the Chrysler K cars? What a piece of junk. <laughs> I'll tell you, I got stuck so many times in that car on that ride, it was, it was horrible. Uh, it was so infuriating, really. So one time I'm coming home and I'm route, route 33 up in the Poconos and, and um, uh, the car gets stuck again. And I'm in the middle of nowhere. I realize I'm going to have to walk close to a mile to get to a payphone. Does anybody know what a payphone is here? All right. And uh, so I get out of the car and, and I decide, though, that instead of getting aggravated this time, I thought, you know, Lord you must have a purpose in this. There's got to be a bigger reason, something beyond just the inconvenience of this car breaking down yet again. And so I walked, I made my way all the way to the payphone, which was inside a bar. And uh, so I get in there and I go to call Denise and as I'm dialing, I I'm going to finish that story later on. Uh, no, I am. I am because this story really has to do with what we're talking about today because we're going to look at the doctrine of God's sovereignty. When we talk about God's sovereignty, what we're talking about is, is the question of how much control does God actually have over the universe? How much control does God have over nature how much control does God have over human will, human choice, and over us? Do, do things happen by chance? Does everything happen by chance? Do just some things happen by chance? Or is God really sovereign, really, really overseeing all the events that happen in the universe, in nature, and with human beings? So today, that's what we are looking at. Pray with me as we open up the word together. Oh, Lord, as we talk about your sovereignty, as we talk about providence, I admit that it's way beyond me. I admit that I, I barely know it. So today, Lord, as, as we come to your word, teach us, help us to understand you more and that our understanding of you would cause us to love you more and respond to you. Oh Lord, we love you and thank you for what you're about to do. In Jesus' name, amen. We want a king. We want a king. That's what the Israelites were yelling in our last chapter, chapter eight. They had decided that God wasn't enough. God, who was their king, God, who was leading them himself, and he was their warrior, and he would use men and women like Jephthah or Samson or Deborah to lead them militarily and to lead them back spiritually to, to the Lord. They decided it wasn't enough. They were tired of that system. We want a king. We want a human king. And so they called for, for a king, and God knew that this was rejection of him. And so God said to Samuel, the judge at that time, he said, Samuel, give them what they want. And that's how chapter eight ended. So now in chapters nine and 10, which we heard some of the reading of, we have the outcome of their decisions. 
Last week, as Greg preached, he talked about their, their need for a king, their desire for a king, was actually not bad in and of itself. In fact, earlier in the Bible, back in Deuteronomy, about 450 years before, God even said they would be calling for a king and that he would give them a king and it would be a good thing. But the problem that was happening right now was that their calling for a king was not that they were following God, but that they were rejecting him and putting him aside. They wanted to be like the other nations. They were tired of, of going to battle and not having a, a strong man at the forefront leading them in battle. They were tired of looking different, and they wanted to be like everybody else. Maybe they were embarrassed about it. And they wanted now to look like all the other nations around them. And so they said, God, we want a king that looks just like the kings of all the other nations. And maybe we can relate to that a little bit. You know, we look different as believers. As people who follow God and, and try to obey him, we look different, or at least we should. We, we should look different. We should, we should speak differently. We should think differently. How we behave ought to be a, a, a difference in our world. And, but really, when you think about what must the world think? Really, what does the world think when in the midst of what's going on, we, we let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving? What does the world think of us when we act like that? James reminds us, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, this ought not to be. In other words, we should just be blessing and not cursing. What does the world think? What does the world think when we bless those who curse us and pray for those who abuse us? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not be even, be even named among you as is proper among the saints. What does the world think of us with that? He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. How about this one? Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. You see, if we live this way, we will certainly stand out. But maybe we get embarrassed sometimes. You know, maybe in a world where faithfulness to one spouse is becoming maybe old-fashioned, maybe we feel a little embarrassed to say, She's the only one. He's the only one. Maybe in a world where basically every get-together involves some sort of a substance, maybe we feel a little ashamed to say, you know, I stay away from that. I, I don't do that. Or maybe in a world where, where uh, certainly tolerance wins out over truth, we become a little embarrassed or ashamed to say, no, I'm holding to biblical truth on, on the hot issues, issues like abortion or sexuality or, or gender or end-of-life issues. We can become a little gun-shy in those situations. 
But then I have to admit, while I've felt that, there are times in my own life where I have also felt superior, like, I'm a Christian, I live by a godly standard, and, and so I stand in judgment of those who don't. And even, this is horrible to say, even sometimes I have expected that they should act like me because I'm acting better, and I impose it on them as if, as if they could do it without the Holy Spirit, when I know I couldn't. I mean, before, before the Holy Spirit, you had to hear me talk. You had to hear me complain. You had to see what I, no, you shouldn't see what I did. See, we're all the same, aren't we? But as believers, we have the Holy Spirit in us. And so we are called to a different standard, but that doesn't make us superior in any way. But at the same time, we ought not to be ashamed of that. You see, our life of obedience is really a life of love to God who gave his all. See, it's not a list of to-dos. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's me saying, God, you gave your all to me. I'm willing to follow you. I want to follow you because I love you, and I want that response to just pour out. That's how we live as believers. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. But it takes faith. It takes a ton of faith to, to say, I'm going to put off immediate pleasure in order to, to make my marriage more beautiful later on. It takes faith to say, I'm going to, to, to trust the Lord for my comfort and for my happiness rather than running to a substance or to, to gaming or to gambling or to whatever else. It takes faith because it's putting off the benefit it takes faith to say, I want God to be my priority rather than my own fame or my own reputation. I want to live by what God wants. That takes faith. See, our obedience makes us stand out. When we obey the Lord, we will stand out in this world. They may not like it, but we don't do it for, for their pleasure. We do it to please God and because we know it is right in our hearts. But if we live like the world then will they really see Jesus in us? Does, will they see that Jesus has made a difference? And so we've got to ask the question, has Jesus made a difference in your life? Has Jesus affected your, your foul speech or how, has, how you use his name in your speech? Has he affected your moral behavior with that person that you're close with? Has he affected your choice of relationships? Has he affected your affections with your spouse? Has he affected uh, all these areas of life? You see, and if he hasn't affected it, then what you have said is, I want to be king. I want a king and I don't want it to be you, God. I want it to be me. I want to be on the throne and rule my own life and make my own decisions here. And that's okay. You can do that. You know, God actually allows that. And that's the, the balance, the strange balance between our choice and God's choice. See, God allows us to make choices. How does, how does the fact that I can make all those choices work with God's sovereignty and his providence? Well, it works this way. It worked this way for the Israelites. They said, we want a king, and God said, I'm going to allow it. We want a king that looks great. And God said, we're going to allow it. And so they asked for a king. 
You know, it's interesting. If you think, if you you're listen to that reading, they asked for a king who was tall and handsome and well-built and good-looking. And yeah, I kind of liken myself unto Saul. You know what I'm talking about? You know, with vicious and delicious. Huh? How about it? <laughs> Please. <laughs> but did you notice, though, that when, when they asked for a king, did you notice that the description of Saul was all outward stuff? said nothing about his character, nothing about his relationship with God, nothing at all. And they didn't seem to mind it. And you know, Saul was what they asked for. What's so great about this, and again, this is just a part of God's sovereignty. The name Saul literally means asked for. So probably when his parents were looking to have a child, they asked God for a child. And they named him Saul, asked for. And here we are about 30 years later probably, and Israel is asking for a king, and God gave them what they asked for. And it continues even further than that because Saul is going to ask them for things, and they're not going to be happy about it. He's going to ask for their allegiance He's going to ask for their children to serve in his army. He's going to ask for their money, for taxes. He's going to ask a lot of them. They got what they asked for. Now, now, sadly, as we continue through the book of 1 Samuel, the rest of the book is all about Saul's downfall. It's so sad. His disobedience to the Lord, he just rejects God over and over. He, he seems to want to please God, but he doesn't even really know God. He refers to God, to, to, when he's referring to God to Samuel, he says, your God. He doesn't say my God. He doesn't even know who God is. And so really, he becomes a picture of what Israel is, a nation who has rejected the Lord, and they don't even seem concerned about it. So is God really sovereign? Is God really sovereign over all of their choices? Well, as we talk about that, I want you to hear this verse. This is from chapter 9, verse 15. And it says, this is, this is God telling Samuel that tomorrow I'm going to bring a man into your life. His name is Saul, and he is the man that will be king over Israel. So God is talking to Samuel. He says, about this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him leader over my people Israel. He will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked upon my people for their cry has reached me and he will govern my people. And here's the thing. Although Israel rejected God and said, we want somebody else, God never let go of them. He loved them. Even though they acted like he, they, they were not his people, he still said, they are my people. Though they, they didn't want to be known or identify with him anymore, he said, they are still my people. So what does that mean for us? What does it mean for a believer? Well, it means this, that God never lets go. Never lets go of you. You and I may make sinful choices, but God never rips up the adoption papers. God never divorces us. God's sacrifice didn't just cover the sins of the past. It covers my sins today, and it covers my sins in the future. Now, hear me clearly. This is not a license to go and sin. It's not a license to sin by any means. In fact, if we continue in sin, what we're doing is we're, we're trampling 
on God's sacrifice. We're saying, oh great, God, you sacrificed for all my sins, so I'll just keep sinning. And if we continue to do that, we mock his kindness. We make a mockery of his kindness to us. The Apostle Paul says it this way. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that God's grace may increase? No way, he says. You may not lose your salvation in sinning, but you lose the beautiful, loving fellowship that you have with God and he is not willing to give it up. You may be in a time of disobedience now, or you may have been in your you know, a past time in your life, a time of disobedience, and you know the feeling, the gnawing at your heart, because you know you're out of fellowship with God. You know you're trying to silence him, calling your name, John, come back. John, don't do this, come, follow me. No, I silence it, Lord, I, I don't wanna hear it, John. He never stops calling. We can't outrun his grace. And maybe sometimes when we've been in that situation, we actually feel the weight of his hand upon us. Just like the Philistines felt that in chapter six. Why does all that happen? It happens because he's not gonna let you go. He loves you too much He will not let you go. God so desires good and healthy and beautiful friendship and relationship with you that he will use whatever means it takes to get you back. And isn't that what a loving father would do? It is. So you may as well give in if he's chasing you. You're not gonna gonna be able to outrun him. You're not gonna be able to hide from him. You may as well give in and say, Lord, I'm responding to the way you're pressing in on me. I want that. So God will always protect his glory and he will always allow you to make sinful choices. You see, we're not robots, we have free will. In fact, it's the sovereign God who has given us this free will. And our free will is not a contradiction to his sovereignty. In fact, it it enhances his sovereignty and it, it, it accentuates his control. Let me explain why. I'm going to use an example. Some of you know this story of the sons of Jacob that comes from the book of Genesis in the Bible. So Jacob was the grandson of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Jacob was a man, you know what's interesting, I'm talking about these men. These men are are our forefathers of the faith. But the Bible's so honest about how mean and rotten they were, right? You know, so, so Jacob plays favorites. He's got 12 sons. His favorite is Joseph. He makes it known. Joseph, he's my boy. That's my Joseph, right? Well, the other sons hate this guy. They can't stand him. They want to get rid of him. So one day they're all out in the field together and they said, we've had it. No more with this Joseph. So they sell him. I mean, you get this? They made money by selling their brother into slavery. That's horrible. They sell him into slavery to this caravan that's going down to Egypt. And they go home, and for at least 18 years, they live in the lie. Dad, we don't know what happened. A wild animal ate him, we guess. We don't know what happened to the guy. You know, they made that sinful choice. But what's amazing about this is because of that sinful choice, Joseph winds up in Egypt, where God uses a couple of other very crazy circumstances to develop Joseph into becoming a man 
who will eventually become the right-hand man to Pharaoh and will administrate a, a, an organization that will save the nation from a seven-year famine. And it not only saves all of Egypt, it saves the countries around them, including Joseph's brothers. And when Joseph and his brothers are reunited at the end of that story, Joseph says these, this amazing sentence that talks about this beautiful balance of our choice and God's sovereignty. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. You brought me to this position so, or he brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. God providentially allowed the sons of Jacob to sin and their sinful choice is what he used to move Joseph down to Egypt and prepare him to save their lives. Another choice, another situation that we have is Jesus and Judas. So at the end of Jesus' ministry, Judas, one of his 12 closest comrades, makes some sinful choices. Actually, all along, Judas has been lying and stealing and cheating. Now, these are... This is one of Jesus' closest disciples, and God is allowing him the choices here. And eventually, Judas will make the choice to betray Jesus and turn him over to the authorities as an innocent man. Judas made those choices. But those choices put Jesus on the cross. Jesus on the cross paid the penalty for your sin and my sin. If Jesus had not gone to the cross, we wouldn't be here today. If Jesus had not gone to the cross and died for our sins, we would not experience the joy of salvation and the beautiful relationship with God that he's not gonna let you get out of. So how do we understand this? Well, listen to how Jesus explained this balance. He said, I will go as it has been decreed, God's sovereign will, but woe to the man who betrays me, man's choice. It's a beautiful, beautiful blending of those two truths. So let me make myself clear again. God never causes us to sin. It's never God's fault that we sin. And God never tempts us to sin. He doesn't try to get us to sin in any way. That's never what he does. But does God use sin? Well, it really does seem that way. And I'll, I'll be even, even further that God actually, actually, um, well, he works in spite of sin. Sin will never thwart God's ways and what he wants to do. It's an amazing thing. When you think about this, sin is the thing that's absolutely antithetical to who God is. God cannot sin. He cannot tempt us to sin. Sin is the the complete opposite. And yet God can take that thing that is the complete opposite and say, I'm going to use it to move my sovereign will, to move people, to move, move what I need to move. God actually turns sin, takes sin, and he turns it, and he uses it to accomplish his will in our lives. So again, I have to say, I need to make this 100% clear. It's never God's will that you and I should sin. When we make sinful choices, we will live in the ramifications of that sin and you'd be better off without it, right? All right, none of us need to be there. 
going against his word will do it. But your sin and my sin will never hinder God from doing his will, from accomplishing what he wants to accomplish. He is that powerful. God would rather bring about his will in our lives without our sin. But if we sin, he will bring about his will. Our sin would never thwart his will or stop it. So I want to come to the donkeys. The donkeys. What an unimportant part of this story. Did you even remember there were donkeys in the story? There were, right? So God actually moved Saul through these donkeys getting lost. The donkeys didn't run away. God got the donkeys out of the pen and moved them so Saul could chase them around the countryside and eventually meet up with with Samuel. Uh, You know, we saw this back in chapter six. God moved the cows to move the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel. But think of this from Paul's perspective, or Saul's perspective. What an inconvenience. Stinking donkeys, why can't they ever stay in their pens? Now I gotta take my handsome self and I gotta chase them all around the countryside. And, And the Bible says he went to three different towns looking for these donkeys, but still they weren't able to be found. What an inconvenience. And what about the young women that he met at the well? So he met these young women. Were these women, they were just there doing their daily task, just getting water. They did this every day. They went to the well to get water for the family. Were they thinking, oh, this is God's sovereign will that this handsome dude is coming up here. What a stud. You can hear them giggling, but they're not thinking about God's sovereignty at this point. They're just doing their daily chore. But God had them there at the time that Saul was there so that they could connect him to Samuel. And so these two lives that were, had nothing to do with each other, Samuel and Saul, through God's sovereign moving of donkeys and young women, brings Samuel into Saul's life and Saul becomes king. It's an amazing thing. God works in amazing ways. So God uses donkeys And God uses unnamed women to bring about this this amazing thing, the first king of Israel. And God uses donkeys and women. So I think about my own life. I think about how many times in my own life the donkeys have run away. Like the time I was eating popcorn and a tooth broke, or the time that I was walking a dog and my arm broke. And the time that I was skimboarding and my arm broke, so much for vicious and delicious, right? (laughs) Uh, The time I forgot directions, the time I lost money, the time I had the fender bender. Last year when the hurricane in Florida stopped us from going on our vacation, uh, all the times my car broke broke down, which actually reminds me, I'm going to finish my story. So, I'm on Route 33, and I walk all the way to to this place to to get in the payphone. I call Denise, and while I'm on the phone, and you're expecting me to say, I look down, and there was a $100 bill. Or maybe you're expecting me to say, while I was there, I met this, this guy who became my next boss, gave me a job that I could afford another car other than that Dodge Aries. Or maybe you're saying, I met a a sad guy sitting at the bar, and I shared Jesus with him, and he accepted the Lord. But none of that happened. You know what happened? Denise came and picked me up. (laughs) And I went home. And I still had that car. But what did happen was my faith grew that day. See, 
I look at it and think, oh, if only I'd gotten that $100 bill, or I'd only been able to share Jesus with somebody. And God said, I have something of greater value in your life right now, John. And that is, I'm going to build your faith. See, that day, instead of fretting, instead of, instead of getting angry yet again, that day, I got to see God provide yet again. I got to abide tighter in Christ and trust him in that difficult situation yet again. And that event became a part of a long list of God's faithfulnesses. I know that's not a word, but it works, right? A long list of God's faithfulnesses over and over and over in my life. See, God said, I have something of eternal value that is so much greater than anything that can be matched here on earth. You know, just a couple of years ago, my refrigerator broke. And so I could think of a lot better ways to spend my time than having to cart everything out of that refrigerator and finding a place to put it and then having to, to research online what went wrong with my, my refrigerator and to buy a part, spend money on a part that wasn't the right part and then research again and buy another part. And I could think of way better ways to spend my time or money. But God said, but I have the best way. And through this experience, I'm going to build your faith because I'm calling you to take one more step. You see, and what that was, was I had to trust that God was caring for me even though a refrigerator broke down. And what a small thing. I mean, there are way bigger trials in our lives. I mean, we have people who just experienced death of spouse, death of children. But every one of those things is an invitation to take one more step, just one more step today. Every hardship we face is an invitation. Nothing happens in our lives that God hasn't designed and, and tailored for us specifically. And we know that he works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So what's the point? The point is this. Every inconvenience, every trial, every hospital stay, every accident, every disappointment, every loss of job, every grief, every appliance breakdown, when the kids tell you they're moving, when the kids tell you they're coming back home, uh, every conviction of the Holy Spirit is an invitation from God to say, one more step, just today, one more step. Tomorrow I'll call you to a new one, but for today, one more step. And so I think about the situations here in this church. Um, I, I actually, I, I wanna say this before I, I do that. Um, a, a few years ago, Carrie Griffith's father was going into the hospital for, uh, I think it was heart failure. And I believe he called Carrie and he said, Jesus wants to get into the hospital and he's inviting me to go with him. And you know, I love that because it really is that perspective, isn't it? It's a perspective like God is moving me to where I need to be. It's he, being in a hospital, who likes being in the hospital? Anybody like being in the hospital? No, but not even the nurses like to be in the hospital, right? We hate it. But like, 
When we're there, it's because God has moved us there, and he's got a purpose for it. And it may be to share the gospel. It may be to witness to, to you know, this nurse or this aide or whatever, but it may just be to build your faith. So what about you? What are your donkeys? Do you have another surgery coming up? Well, God's inviting you. Take one more step toward me. Are you grieving the loss of somebody very close to you? God is inviting you today to take one more step in that grief. You don't know what's ahead of you, but take that one more step of faith. Let him build that faith because that's what this is about. Are you dealing with the natural decline of age? Has, has you know, vicious and delicious become, I don't know, wimpy and skimpy probably, right, right? Take one more step in faith. Is there a difficult person in your life who's causing trouble, who's, who's persecuting you? Take one more step in faith. Is God calling you to greater obedience in the moral area, in, in, in your, your thoughts, in your, your activity with other people, with boyfriend or girlfriend? He's inviting you to take a step of faith, to trust him in that. Has he convicted you about an unhealthy relationship? Take that step. Come with me, he says. Trust me. You can let go of that relationship. You have me. You don't need a king. You have me. Are you struggling in controlling your tongue? God says, have faith. You don't need that. Take that step. And for all of us, I think everybody here in this room is waiting. Waiting. We're waiting for God, waiting for him to do something, whether it's waiting for a spouse or waiting for, for a sickness to end or whatever it is. We're all waiting, and in that waiting, God is saying and inviting us to take one more step yet again today. One more step. So the truth of God's sovereignty helps us to make sense of all these things. If we don't understand God's sovereignty, then all these things are inconveniences or, or hassles or horrible things in life. And how can we face them? But God's sovereignty helps us to make sense of these things. And not only that, but he uses every one of them to shape us. Sometimes he'll use it to make you a king. But most of the time, he just uses it to build your faith by saying, take one more step with me right now. So if we understood the value of faith the way God understands faith, then maybe they aren't just donkeys after all. It's God moving in his sovereign and beautiful way. Pray with me now. God, we can hardly understand how you work. But we are moved by how much you love us, how much you care for us, that you care so much for us that you would actually bring difficulty into our lives and allow us to face difficulty and purpose to use difficulty to shape us, to build us up in our relationship with you, Lord, I pray that every person here in this 
in this building today and every person listening online would agree that taking that one more step of faith that you're inviting them to is worth it because you have declared it to be the best for each of us. Oh Lord, help us. You have not forgotten us. You are faithful in the fire and the flood. Your love is perfect. Your faith never fails. You are sovereign over us, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.